While they're making their way out, take a Bible and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, if you will. 2 Peter chapter 3, we're working our way through this book a section at a time, and uh, we're getting awful close to the finale. Not quite today, though it might feel like it by the time we get done with this, because we'll talk about some final issues, and that's where it leads us. Follow along as we read, beginning in chap uh, chapter 3, verse 10, 2 Peter. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved... Looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot, blameless. Let's bow in prayer, shall we? Lord, these are difficult words. They, are, they bring images that are frightful. And yet you've given us these words to instruct us and to guide us. And you've shown us that every passage is profitable. And Lord, I pray that we would find good profit in it, that we would come to clear understanding and that understanding would motivate our life appropriately. Well, thank you for what you will accomplish in this hour in Jesus' name. In order to understand the section that we just read, we have to remember that Peter has in view false teachers. And if we go back to verse 4, it says these false teachers were saying, well, where is the promise of Christ's coming? For ever since the foundations or ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. This, uh, this idea that nothing changes, all stays the same, and the sun rose yesterday, it's going to rise tomorrow, no worries, it's all just going to continue, and it's that uniformitarianism viewpoint. And so Peter's saying, in other words, these false teachers have rejected the second coming of Christ because, among other reasons, the traditional teaching that the coming would include a worldwide upheaval in nature, well, that, that's just simply not believable, is it? After all, you know, a 7.2 earthquake off Japan's coast followed by an 8.9 devastation a few days later, that, that could just never happen. Of course, they hadn't paid attention very long because it seems that uh, major worldwide upheavals have taken place pretty consistently throughout human history. But the fact is, Peter is addressing this kind of false teaching, and it goes a long way to explain really what I would term a one-sided description of the end of the age that we just read here in verses 10 to 14. Now, I, I say it's one-sided description in this. The whole discussion of the end, beginning in verse 4, they got started there with the scoffers denying the second coming. But, when, but after that, Peter really doesn't mention it a lot until he gets to this verse, and he speaks of how it affects the world. 
his picture of the end is very simple. He says, fire will destroy the sky and the earth and everything in it, verse 10. And a new heavens and new earth will stand in their place, verse 13. Now, he doesn't show directly how this relates to the coming of Christ or the rapture, the tribulation, the millennium, the judgment of works, or for that matter, how Christians find their way into the new heavens and the new earth. But the point is, the reason Peter's willing to settle for this limited, simple, but powerful picture of the end is that he has in view the false teachers, and they need to hear this one emphasis. These false teachers, well, let me back up. I'm jumping ahead of myself just slightly. He, he is trying to rescue new converts from being lured into heresies. Let me list a few of the heresies. I put them briefly in your notes. These false teachers were devoted to the world system. They loved the world. We talked about a little bit in Sunday school this morning. The world system is that which stands in opposition to the things of God. As we view it, it may or may not seem to be coordinated, but it is always in opposition to the things of God. And the false teachers were committed, devoted to the world. They were also exploiting God's grace. We looked at that a few weeks ago. Uh, they exploited the doctrine of God's grace, the teaching of it. Because of that, they misunderstood spiritual freedom. Remember, we talked about you've been called to freedom, but don't use your freedom for an occasion to the flesh. But in fact, that's exactly what they did. They justified their immoral indulgences. And that goes all the way through. There are the God's grace, spiritual freedom, and the moral indulgences. They really all flow out of one another. These were things that the false teachers were, were teaching to the church. They had a love of money, and they justified it through their teaching. They had a love for human praise. Now, all of this was encapsulated around their denial of Christ's return. That was foundational to the rest of their teaching because they understood that if Christ was not returning, they didn't have to be accountable for their exploitations of God's grace, for their acts of of immoral indulgence for their love of human praise and love of money and all that came with that. And so the denial that Christ was coming back into the world might interrupt their devotion to the world. And therefore, Peter says, you need to understand what's going to happen with the world system, the works of the world, and the world itself. It's going to burn. That's his answer. The world you love, the world you are so committed to, so devoted to, it has an end. You need to be aware of it. All your accumulated wealth, all the buildings and monuments that you have put in place for yourselves, it's going to burn. Now, Peter has this very blunt impact. He's kind of that way, though, isn't he? <laughs> uh, that's been the way Peter was when he walked with Jesus and uh, when he took the ear of Ananias, uh, the, the priest's uh, servant, off and when he said, Jesus, let me walk out there with you on the water. And even as he interacted with the slave girl uh, during the trial of Jesus, he's just all, he's right out front, spontaneous. This is not a spontaneous thought, but it is very blunt, it's very forward, it's very exact. He doesn't give a long, detailed picture of how all the events of the end of the age will fit together. 
I think there's a good lesson for us in that. Uh, while it is very much a legitimate theological pursuit to fit all the various aspects of the end times into a coherent system, that's fine as long as we honor the true meaning of each aspect of it. But don't forget that when it comes to applying future to the present in order to kindle hope and encouragement, to encourage serious thought and in order to motivate godliness, the biblical writers very typically zeroed in on one or two parts of the picture and they drove that point home for all it was worth. And that's what Peter's doing. He's not getting sidetracked by all the other aspects of the return of Christ. He says, I want you to understand this one thing, and it's going to motivate you. It ought to. And I suspect that as we witness to others that this is good instruction for us and how we ought to follow suit. Don't get sidetracked by all the detail. Focus on the reality that we know is going to happen. Now, as we get into the text and we get a little closer look, we see what Peter's admonition is beginning in verse 10, and he speaks of this coming day of the Lord. And he says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You know, it was actually Jesus that put those two thoughts together, the, the day of the Lord and the thief idea, and, and brought them together. Um, in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 42, he said, Watch therefore, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the householder had known in what part of the night that the thief was coming, he would have watched and would not have let his house be broken into. Well, that's Jesus beginning that correlation. And then Paul took it a little bit later. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, he puts it like this. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as travail comes upon a woman with child and there will be no escape. But you are not in darkness, brethren, for that day to surprise you like a thief. And so there's some, uh, some implications here. The implications begin with the day of the Lord includes the coming of the Lord. Uh, don't be sidetracked. This is not the rapture that he's speaking of. That comes prior to the day of the Lord. This is when he comes and he sets his feet on the earth and he comes to rule and to reign with power and authority. It includes that. But it will be sudden, it will be unexpected, and it will be destructive for all those that deny the name of Christ. And let me just say, to deny the name of Christ doesn't mean you have to stand up and deny Him. It means you don't respond in faith to Him. To not respond and accept Him is to deny Him. And so we have this image, a thief in the night. It will be sudden, it's unexpected, and it's destructive. That's the nature of a thief. But he also says that it will bring deliverance and salvation to those who are doing the Master's work. If you're walking with him in obedience, in faith, then this is a glorious time because he's bringing deliverance. He's bringing freedom. He's bringing righteousness to bear. And that is to benefit all people. But Peter goes further 
And he emphasizes the destruction of the present world order by fire. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will be dissolved with fire. And the earth and the works that are on it will be burned up. And he uses a little bit of a different term. He says the day of God, which means the same thing as the day of the Lord. And he repeats that the heavens will be kindled and dissolved and the elements will melt with fire. This day of the Lord, the Old Testament talked about that. In fact, as the Old Testament writers spoke of the day of the Lord, this is what it meant. It pointed to that time when God vindicates His name. That's the first thing that happens. He vindicates His name. He proves Himself to be faithful to what He has stated. As he does that, he brings judgment on those who denied him and walked in disobedience to him. And then thirdly, he gathers his people into a new kingdom of righteousness and peace. That's what's all involved in the day of the Lord. Where do we find that? Well, Joel chapter 2, the prophet said, Speaking of the Lord, I will give portents in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Zephaniah, I know that's top of your bedtime Bible reading. Zephaniah. Chapter 1, verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blasts and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord." Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of wrath of the Lord. In the fire of His jealous wrath, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full, yea, sudden end will He make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Another prophet, Malachi, refers to the day of the Lord and he describes it like this in Malachi 3 and, and chapter 4. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. For behold, the day comes burning like an oven when all the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble. The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. You shall go forth leaping like calves out of the stall. Some of you have been around the farm and you see those young calves when you open that stall door and they just bound out, ah, glad for the spring day, and they're bounding about and jumping about and enjoying all that there is. What a joy and a release and a pleasure for those that know and walk with Christ. But for those that don't, it's going to be a very dark time. So Peter, in 2 Peter here, he's not saying anything new. He's really not saying anything unexpected. The expect expectations had been set, you know, four or 6,000 years prior to Peter that God's wrath would one day boil over in a fiery destruction on the ungodly and the world would be 
destroyed. But in verse 13, he changes tone slightly. It seems strange, I think, that God would destroy the world, which back in Genesis chapter 1, he had called very good. Remember that? Everything that God created was good. But you remember what happened after he created it good? Man walked in, in disobedience to God. Because of that disobedience, it affected him in his condition with one another, in his condition with God, but it also affected the ground. In Romans 8, verse 20 and 21, not only mankind, but the natural world was subjected to futility, as it says, when sin entered the world. It says the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope. Because the, uh, the, crea because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. So Paul he talks about this transformation that will take place in creation. That transformation will occur. But this description of a new heaven and a new earth in verse 10 and, and verse 12, I don't think refers to an annihilation of creation as some have taught. But I think it refers to a catastrophic purging a supernatural transformation of the creation as God reverses the curse and makes all things new once again as it was in the garden. Where do I get that? Well, you notice verse 6 and 7, by comparison, talks about the destruction of water in Noah's day. And now we have a destruction by fire in the end. The water did not annihilate the world, did it? It purged it. And so the fire will purify and transform creation. So in verse 13, Peter lays hold of the promise of a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that promise comes from Isaiah 65, verse 17, where God says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. Many of us wonder how we will be able to respond to loved ones and friends who died and they weren't in the Lord, and we will be in the heaven's glory and wonder, well, what will I think about them? And I think this verse gives us a little bit of an indication there. I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. We will see things from God's vantage point, not from our earthly mind. It says we will be glad and rejoice in what He has created. So when Peter emphasizes that this new world will be one in which righteousness dwells, he implies that the cause for destroying the old world is man's unrighteousness and that those who have veered away from righteous and righteousness and faith, they will not be included in the new world. Now, there's some interesting things here. Peter says uh, he, he doesn't stress in these verses that unbelievers will be judged. He had done that repeatedly in chapter 2 already. And it is implied here. 
But the emphasis is not on the destruction of people in verse 10, but on the destruction of the earth and its works. And according to verse 11, it's the passing away of the earth and its works that should motivate us to holiness and godliness. Verse 11 says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of person ought you to be? How should you be living your lives? And he answers that in the very question, lives of holiness and godliness. You say, well, how is that motivation? Well, most people try to find meaning in life by creating something that will not just be here today and gone tomorrow. We want something that is lasting, a, a legacy, if you will. We want to overcome our sense of fin finiteness by producing something. Some people build equity in, uh, they get a sense of power and success by having uh, a home and a portfolio and others build a professional reputation you know, they use their skills and their hard work and they get a sense of power because of their responsibility and accomplishments. Maybe how many people look to them for leadership. Others build artistic design, artistic expression, and they exalt what has been created. Some others, maybe more simply, have created hobbies and maybe collections, maybe coins or beetles or buttons or whatever it happens to be. And they create something and they gain a sense of, uh, of maybe even superiority or accomplishment from the size of their collectness or the, the richness of their garden. The false teachers that Peter writes about here have lined their pockets with money. They have elevated themselves above authority. They have built a reputation as astute interpreters of Paul's difficult words. And they've given themselves immoral license. And Peter's response to all of that and to us is, it's going to burn up. All that you have accumulated, all that you have created has a finite end going to be gone. It won't matter. Well, that's not too encouraging, is it? At least you want to go home and sell everything you have and go move on to mountaintop, right? I hope not. I think the implication of verse 11 is this. The only things that are going to survive are the expressions of holiness and godliness. The only thing that's going to pass through the judgment is what has been done for Christ. Many of you, I'm sure, have seen the little plaque. Maybe you have one on your walls, and it simply it says it so well. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's a truth. It's validated by what Peter says right here. The point of verse 11 is everything eventually is going to be burned up except for the fruits of holiness. A life lived for the world will go empty into the judgment. Believer, what are you living for? What are your pursuits? Young folks, choose your pursuit well. Choose your lifestyle. Choose your direction. Find out how you can utilize your gifts, your abilities to further the work of God and create eternal value. And that doesn't mean everybody has to go into full-time ministry. 
It's something you ought to consider, though. Maybe God has called you to go across the seas to minister to people in great need. Maybe God has called you to be a pastor's or a pastor's wife or an evangelist. Then use your gifts and use your abilities with all your worth. Maybe God has called you into some secular pursuit that's absolutely fine. Just have the right motivation with what you're doing with it because only what's done for Christ will last. I hear that uh, when the main doors are open in the Metrodome, there is a huge rush of wind that comes through because all the air that's in there and supports usually supports that, that roof. Now, if you can imagine a person in the first Metrodome tropical bird show, and here this fellow goes in and he finds all these beautiful exotic feathers of birds from all over the world, and he goes around and he gathers them, and he creates quite a collection of them. And he takes them to the door to, to go show them. And as that door opens, that gust of wind takes all his collection and blasts it clean down the streets, disperses it to the winds. You say, well, that's absurd and ridiculous, and it is, but let me tell you, it's a flattering picture of the person who tries to build some meaning for life through finance, money, profession, reputation, or hobbies because it's all just going to get blown and scattered. And worse than that, it's going to be burned and destroyed and gone to never be remembered. And if that is a believer who has gathered all the things, all the pretty feathers from the world, and he stands before God, he'll have nothing. And I think the lesson for us is to put our minds on the spotlight of eternity, assess things from God's vantage point, Devote yourself to things that will last. This life goes so quickly. We talked about that last week. The older you get, the faster time goes. The more you're enjoying things, the faster time goes. Life will be over before you know it. Verse 12 says, as you look for the coming day of the Lord in this way, you will actually hasten Verse 9 said that God is holding back the final day that you might repent. It reasons that repenting and living a life of holiness will help remove the cause of God's delay. Now, we don't change God's timetable in an absolute sense. We don't hasten His coming in an absolute way. In fact, Scripture teaches in Acts that the Father has fixed the time and the season by His own authority. And Jesus said in Mark 13, that the Father knows the hour of the Son's return. But from our vantage point, we can hasten the day by fulfilling the preconditions of Christ's return, preaching the gospel to all nations, the repentance of the full number of Gentiles who must come into in before the end. And evidently, Peter believes that lives of holiness and godliness will fulfill the condition and ultimately hasten the day of God. And I think that fits as we get older and as we are doing more of His work, time goes faster and God will come sooner in our mind, in our perspective. I want to look at the motivation for righteous living in verse 13 and 14. 
And this time, Peter is not saying, think what you might lose in the age to come. But he's saying, look what you gain. Yeah, we hold so closely to this world. Uh, we, we enjoy it, and God has given us this world to enjoy. But we have to enjoy it in light of the blessing of God and understand that the things that we see and enjoy today are just minuscule in comparison to what he has in store. It's a veiled image of the incredible glory that he has for those that are walking with him. Verse 13 says, According to God's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then in verse 14, he, he draws this inference for daily life from that hope. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you wait for these things, be zealous to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And so I said, well, how can we as sinful people hope to be found without spot or blemish? Unlike the false teachers who were blemishes on, on the work of God, as he described earlier. I think there's an interesting parallel between 1 John 1.7 and the verses that we've just read. In 1 John 1, 7, it says, If we walk in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Well, that parallels that concept of living at peace, doesn't it? As you see this day approaching, knowing these things are going to happen, be at peace. Don't be a blemish, but be found in Him without spot or blemish and at peace. Walk in fellowship with one another. And then he goes on in 1 John 1, 7, he says, The blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Well, that parallels the being without spot or blemish, doesn't it? But notice that both peace and spotlessness or fellowship and cleansing depend on our walking in the light as God is in the light. When Peter says, be zealous and be found in God without spot or blemish and at peace, he's saying the same thing as John does when he says, walk in the light. And, and it's the same thing that Jude says in Jude 21. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And where do we find power to walk in the light, to stand in the love of God? when godless pleasures, worldly pleasures entice us and they zealously pursue us, how do we keep pursuing what is pure and peaceable? Well, I think the answer was back in chapter 1, verse, beginning in verse 3, where it says, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his very precious and great promises, that through these you may escape the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. So as we look at the promise of a new heaven and a new earth, a place where righteousness dwells and people are benefited and encouraged and constantly blessed, in which glory and the excellence of God covers the earth, even as waters cover the, the sea, as we relish that promise and we hope in that promise, 
then his divine power fires us up with a zeal for purity and a zeal for peace. God gives us a couple of motivations. One is knowing that the earth and the vain accomplishments of it are going to be burned up. They will be destroyed. And only the fruits of righteousness and holiness will remain. That ought to motivate us. That ought to stop and give us pause. Where is my life headed? Where is this world headed? We don't know the day. We don't know the time. But we do know that God has brought judgment prior. And God will do it again. There's another motivation. And it's the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. And that promise should shine so bright with the righteousness and the glory of God that we can do nothing else but walk in the light. Knowing that God has prepared a place for us, knowing that God has filled that with His glory and His righteousness, and that will display through our lives and the lives of everyone else there. To use another religious term, it will be nirvana. It will be what they seek. But it won't be found in ourselves. It's found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you ready to enter that place? Maybe through the natural course of life and death. Maybe by His imminent return. And what we know is the rapture. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And for those that walk in Christ and know Him as Savior, they have this hope. They have this confidence. I trust that's your hope and confidence. Because as you look back at life on earth, really, it's pretty meaningless, isn't it? You've seen the pictures and the devastation in Japan these last few days as the waters just came in and whatever was there, didn't matter how secure they thought it was. Cars, buildings, roads, they were gone in a moment. People's lives, gone. People's legacies, gone. Some of them, their memory will be gone. All that they had worked for, instantly gone. That pales in comparison to the day of the Lord. When all this will come about, are you ready for it? Do you have concern about it or do you look forward to it? For those that don't know Christ and have not walked with Him, that's a frightful day. It's a frightful anticipation. But it doesn't have to be, does it? It can be a time when we can look forward to knowing that God has in store for us all the blessings and an eternal relationship would you bow your heads with me? Father, thank you for the hope that we have in the person of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that even though these things are destined to come about, we know that you have prepared a place for us that know you, that respond in obedience to you. And I pray that even in this hour, in these moments, that if there are those sitting amongst us today that don't know you as Savior, that they would commit themselves to you for the blessings of life in eternity, for the blessings of the relationship with you. Father, I thank you for the promise that you give us, 
many great and precious promises. May they motivate us to godly living, knowing these things will come about. For those that may not know Christ as Savior, I invite you to respond to Him even where you're at in faith. It's a simple reflection of your heart expressed to God through silent prayer, saying something to the effect of God, I understand that my sin is what has separated me from you and will ultimately bring judgment. But I understand that Jesus died on the cross taking my punishment on Himself and giving me the opportunity of life and rela eternal relationship with Him. And so I accept His payment for myself today. May Your Spirit give me a new life and a new hope. And then give Him thanks for the transformation that He will accomplish as He begins to work in your life. Father, may Your work accomplish what You desire. We give You thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand together as we sing a, a final song. Living for Jesus, that ought to be a motivation, knowing that God has given us the final chance.